we have been in the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians since, um, since the beginning of April. And we're going to be back in there again today in chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 17. So if you want to open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, I appreciate that. And um, as, uh, as you're opening there, I'd like to remind you of kind of how we got to where we're at right now. The first three chapters uh, of Ephesians that we had talked about talk all about who God is and what He has done for us and what He's done for us in our lives and, and the fact that He's chosen us and the fact that He's given us His Son and the fact that, that His grace and mercy poured out on us that even though we didn't deserve it, He did it anyway. Um, that was really the first three chapters. And then as it transitioned, the book of Ephesians transitions into uh, chapter 4 and 4 through 6, really what it talks about is our response, how we are to respond to God's love for us. And we started last week talking about, A, finding our identity and finding our identity in Christ. That's one of the first things we need to do in our response to Him. And then we need to build unity within the church. And the church isn't just us sitting right here, but it is the worldwide church, those people who follow Christ. And even though we're supposed to have unity, we still have diversity. And that diversity is found in the spiritual gifts that we're given and the spiritual gifts that we have in each of us make, that, that makes us different, that makes us different from one another, that makes us not all just robots who just follow, uh, follow blindly. And we use those gifts to minister to people. And it is the pastor's and the teacher's job to help develop those gifts within you so you and I can minister together. And then we finally talked about maturing in our spiritual lives. This week, as we get into verse 17 and go all the way through uh, verse 34 in chapter chapter 4, what we're going to do is we are going to take that maturing process and expand it a little bit. We're going to take a look at how we mature as Christians and as we grow And as we go through this process, because it is a process that is lifelong, it is a process that from the day that you accept Christ, your life will continue to change and continue to grow and continue to to be more like Him until the day we die. It's not something that we ever will reach the pinnacle and just be there and be like, all right, yep, I finally made it, I'm good, I'm the the best Christian that you can possibly be, so uh, we're good to go. Um... What I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to read verses 17 through 34, if you'd follow along with me as we read. It says, With with the Lord's authority, I say this, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against Him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasures and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature Created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. 
for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you'll be saved in the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. As we look at this passage and we see what Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, those Christians who were in, in the middle of a culture that was trying to pull them away from you, God, we see the same thing in our culture today. A culture that is trying to pull us away from you. God, speak to us this morning and not in some legalistic way that we need to, need to be better to improve and make other people think that we're better, but we need to be better because you've called us to be better and called us to step up and be above. Change our hearts and change our minds. Open it to us today. Pray it all in your name. Amen. There's a lot in this passage. Really, we probably could have taken two or three Sundays to go through this, um, but I kind of wanted to tie it all together because it all fits together. Really, we're breaking it up even more because uh, that ends at chapter 5, at the beginning of chapter 5. We could have kept talking even into chapter 5 about this. Um, but what I want to make sure that we do this morning is I want to make sure that we don't get this legalistic mindset, that we don't um, get that pinheaded type thinking. And I know I'm, that's probably not the best words to use, but but sometimes we start getting very legalistic and say, well, this is what you have to do, this is what you have to do, this is what you have to do. And we get this mindset that's wrong because we think sometimes we get confused to say that, well, Jesus came to make bad people good. But that's not right, and that's not true. Because Jesus came to make dead people alive. And that is, that is the, the thing that we need to grasp this morning, and that we need to make sure that our mindset is on the fact that Jesus is trying to transform us. Transform us from death to life. And Jesus came to give us a new life. And Paul is talking about it, and it seems to be a reoccurring theme. If you have read through Paul's epistles, all the different letters that he wrote to all the different churches, you'll see that what he wants to do is he wants to talk about this transformation from death to life. I mean, it even talks about it, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, and a new life has begun. There's this once was to what is now. And we have this old life. There's this old life that was full of sin, that it was full of, well, just things that were against God because we didn't know who God was, and we didn't even really know what was right and wrong in the, in the grand scheme of things. We kind of lived on our own and made our own decisions. Now, mom and dad might have taught us some morals and some things that would have been based on, on Christianity, possibly. But for the most part, we had this old life. And then Jesus came in, and he changed our lives into this new life 
when we let him come in and make his home within us, it changes everything. We have this new life and a new life that doesn't have any room for old life to linger. Our problem is we like to let our old life linger. We like to kind of go back and forth between the two. We like to sit on the fence and say, well, this week I'm going to do this, or, or this day I'm going to do this, but then I'm going to do this here because I like this better. As far as God is concerned, our old life is gone. When Christ came in to our lives, when he died on the cross for us, God sees us as righteous. He sees us as righteous, but the thing with that is, is that that righteousness has to do with our position in Christ. We have this new spiritual nature in our lives, but we still have a sin nature to deal with in our daily lives. We still have this sin nature. See, Paul, who wrote the letter of Ephesians, also wrote uh, a letter to the church in Rome. And if you look at the book of Romans and you look at the book of Ephesians, you'll see a lot of things that are parallel to each other. He's he's talking to them about, in, in Rome, as the same thing he's telling to the church in Ephesus. He's saying, hey guys, there's a culture out there that doesn't know God. And they're living as if they don't know God. My challenge to you is, because you know God, live like it. Don't just talk like it. Walk the walk. Live like it. That thing that he's talking about even in Rome, or at the church in Rome, he tells them in, in Romans 6.6, 6, he says, We know that our sinful selves were crucified with Christ. Crucified meaning it died. Our sinful lives died with Christ. So that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. But as we continue to read in that chapter 6, six verses later, starting in verse 12, it says, Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Just because that sin life was crucified, we can still give in to our sinful desires, and that's the problem. We may not be actual slaves, but sin can control the way we live. We have a choice. There's a new book by John MacArthur out called Slave. And the reason why he wrote it was because a lot of people think there is a freedom in Christ. And yes, there is a freedom from eternal damnation in Christ. But we either are a slave to sin or we are a slave to Christ. We don't have a freedom of choice to do as we want. We are all slaves to something. And that's why Paul starts off the passage in Ephesians 4 here with this verse. It says, With the Lord's authority, I say this. Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Paul says, there are people out there that live a life without Christ. Don't do this because you know Christ. You know that life. The NLT version says, they are hopelessly confused. The NIV version says, living in the futility of their thinking. These Gentiles. Basically what he's saying is, there is a worldly life that is out there. And they're living for something that they think has hope. But it doesn't. There's no hope. They don't even know exactly why they're living the lives that they live. 
They don't know why they go out and party. They don't know why they just spend their money on frivolous things. They don't know why they do all these things to please their inner self because tomorrow it doesn't feel good anymore. And they keep having to do it and keep having to do it. He says that is them being hopelessly confused. They think they're serving these little gods, but they're not. And the problem is, is we need to change our way of thinking. Romans one twenty one says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. I like how it says, they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. How many times have you seen something on TV, or maybe you yourself have even thought this, but you hear people talk about God as if he's some genie in the sky, as if he's some giant Pez dispenser that you just have to reach over, tilt his head back, and out spits out exactly what you want. You know, we take God and we transform him into what we want him to be versus what he actually is and that we need to worship him for that instead of changing him into what we want him to be. Because we can make God fit into our lives if we change who God is. Our thing is, is we're supposed to fit into his plan, not the other way around. And, you know, we have this, this hard time in thinking about that because we really do know who God is, but because we know who he is and what he expects, it's a bit of a hard pill to swallow. And I think that's part of the problem here with the the church in Ephesus. I think it's part of the problem with the church in Rome. And I think it's part of the problem with the church here in America. We know who God is, but we want to make him out to be something just a little bit different. And that's why Paul writes even here in Ephesians 4, back to 18, It says, their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. Verse 19 says, they have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. When you read that, you might think that he wrote that last week. I mean, in all honesty, you look at that and you say, is he talking about the church at Ephesus 2,000 years ago? And, and the culture of Ephesus, or is he talking about America and the, and the culture that surrounds the church here? It says, they have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasures and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. You ever just sat and watched the news, some of the stories that go on, and you say, how in the world could that possibly happen? Well, it's because God gives, uh, they have wandered from the life that God gives because they've closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. That's why. They don't understand who God is. They didn't understand it then, and they're still doing the same thing today. And it's a sad thing is, is that Paul is writing to Christians. He's not writing to the church, or I mean to the, the city of Ephesus. He's writing to the church at Ephesus. Why is that? Why does he have to write these things to a church? Why does he have to do that? How did it make it into the Bible that God wanted us to understand this and hear about this? Well, I think the reason is, is because Christians easily fall into this type of thinking. Did you know that the divorce rate between Christians and non-Christians is about a percentage point difference? About a percentage point. These who are hardened 
and their hearts against God are almost the exact same thinking of marriage as those who know God. Did you know that just as many men look at porn on the internet that are Christians in, in comparison to non-Christians? Why is that? There's this group that has no hope, and there's this group that has hope, yet they're, they're doing the exact same things against God. There's just as many Christians having affairs in their marriages as non-Christians. Why is that? That's the reason why Paul wrote this. Because we choose to let sin rule and not Christ. We choose to be slaves to our sin rather than Christ. We make up our own gods or our own God to justify what we do. And obviously this passage states those without, those without God live like they're without God. I mean, it's, it's a simple thing. Sometimes we as Christians look out there and say, how in the world can you possibly live that way? Well, they have no other moral standards to live by. Why would they choose to live any different? Non-Christians are going to act like, get this, non-Christians. I mean, that's the life they choose to live. The question we have is, why do Christians choose to live like non-Christians? We have hope. We have God. We've been, as Romans 12:1 tells us, transformed. And that word transformed is the word that they use to say uh, metamorphosize. The, the idea of a caterpillar changing into a butterfly. We've been transformed. No way a butterfly is going to go back to being a caterpillar. We shouldn't want to go back to our old way of life. And that's what Paul is talking about. So the question is, is why do we struggle? Why do we struggle so much? Well, easy answer is sin's fun. At least for the moment. Sin is fun. It's part of our nature. And when we have all these lures, when you watch TV, when you go to movies, when you're on the internet, when you're listening to music, all these different things, there's lures that are out there. You can't watch one sporting event without seeing 500 beer ads. There are lures that are out there. And you see those things, and Paul knew. Paul knew at the time that the culture of Ephesus was pulling these Christians away from God. And I think that God knew that 2,000 years later that we would be getting pulled away from him as well by our culture. So he wrote this. He had Paul write this. It says, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and you have learned the what? What's that word? Verse 21. Could you put 21 up there for me? Anybody got it? Truth. That's right. When we learned the truth that comes from Him, we know the truth. Truth is not an opinion. As much as there's times that we want to make it just a little bit different, and we want to change it, read through the Gospels. Tell me the things that Christ says. Tell me what He talks about. When there are people that are following Him, that are following Him because He provided for their physical needs, when the, fi the 5,000, when He feeds the 5,000, all these, all these, read about it in John chapter 6. 
He feeds the 5,000. They go across the lake. All these people go, hey, you know what? He provided for my physical needs. We're going to go get some more food from him. And he turns around and says, okay, you can keep coming back for food all you want. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer you something else. It's the bread of life. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, you can eat my flesh and you can drink my blood. And everybody in this went, ew, what are you talking about? He says, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to follow me. You're going to have to give up everything and follow me. We know that truth, yet we don't want to give up everything. Luke 9.23 says, uh, it says, take up your cross and follow me on a daily basis. That's not something that's easy to do. But we know the truth. We know that's what he's said. We like to take the parts that, that sound nice. We don't want to take the parts that sound difficult. And Paul says, you know the truth. You know what you learned from Christ and what you learned from him. We want to create a gray area. But because we know the truth, verse 22 says, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Every day, every day we have a choice to make. You can put on the same old dirty clothes that you wore a long time ago, or you can put on that new life. It's your choice. It's your choice. The thing is, is that you're going to constantly be bombarded with the old you. How do you fight it off? Remember back when we talked about Paul's prayer for us? A couple weeks ago, we talked about Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, the very last part. The very first thing he told us to do is tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. He tells us again in verse 23 here, he said, Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Truly righteous and holy. There's that idea of spiritual renewal again, that way of transforming, letting God transform you, letting the Spirit transform you, to change you, to take off the old sin nature, to put on the new nature that God's given for you, to be more like Him. You know, and sometimes we say, well, if that's happening, how does the outside have to show it? What, what do I have to do? I mean, is it one of those things where I need to be better than everybody else? It, it's not just an act that we put on. Because we've been to churches and we've seen people that put on the act. That everything is good in their life and that God is good and that they're on this great level with God. Yet we know and they know that things aren't as good as they try to make them out to be. This idea of putting on this new nature, nature needs to be a natural outflow. It needs to be a natural outflow from our love for God and our growing relationship with Him. And the result is, is what He asks us to do next. And that's starting in verse 25 where it says, Stop telling lies. So stop. Okay, because you have this new nature, because you're different because Christ is in you, because you have this hope, here are some things that you need to do. First thing is to stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. This week, I was in Amarillo. Camden had a camp, and, and uh, we got to go to Amarillo, and 
the funny thing about Amarillo, we were joking a little bit about it. They have giant Christian bookstores there. And I think it's because it's in the Bible Belt. When you go to a Christian bookstore here in Albuquerque, um, it's about the size of this stage right here. Um, when you go to Amarillo, it doubles this cafeteria. It's just huge. And I'm standing back in the back, and I'm looking at books, and they had the, this bargain book rack, and a dollar and three dollars for books, and I'm looking at it, and this lady's kind of standing on the other side of the rack, and she's on the phone. And I kind of laughed a little bit, because whoever she was on the phone with needed to meet up with her, and she goes, well, I'm checking out right now. And, and she continued the conversation about how she'd be there in ten minutes, and I thought it funny that she wasn't checking out, that it would be just as easy to say, well, I'm back in the back of the bookstore. I'm going to head up front and check out here in just a minute. But she had to lie to that person to save the extra 30 seconds it was going to take her to get to the front of the store to actually check out. And, you know, sometimes in our lives, it's so much easier to lie first before we even think about telling the truth. It's like there's something that, that's inside of us. It says, stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Truth builds respect. Truth builds trust. That's what we need to have. And when we just, even if it's just a simple little lie, who cares if you're at the back of the store or if you're checking out? I mean, they probably weren't like, you're not really checking out, are you? I don't hear any cha-ching, cha-ching, you know, going on. So I know you're not really checking out. You're lying to me. That, it didn't really matter, but she did it anyway. Why do we do things like that? The second thing it says, it says, and don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Why? You've heard this before. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Your mom probably quoted that to you at some point in time. She didn't even know it was in the Bible, maybe. And it said that don't let the sun go down in your anger. Why not? Why not? And I got to thinking about it this week, because this week I got a little bit angry. Um, I told you we were in Amarillo. Uh, we stayed in Amarillo a little longer than we wanted to. And the reason for it is because our van uh, that we have uh, decided to stop working. Uh, right as we pulled into to Christie's parents' driveway, our transmission went out and uh, would not go any further. And good thing is, is Christie's dad knows a transmission guy, and, and he said, okay, well, it's, it's probably going to be just a day or two. We're going to take a look at it. This happened on, on a Tuesday afternoon. So Wednesday we figured, okay, well, by Thursday we're going to be out of here and gone. Well, we continued to call, continued to call, said, well, uh, we haven't gotten out yet, we haven't got a chance to look at it yet, and, and so on and so forth. And it, it went from being a, well, it'll probably be about $1,500 to, we have to replace the whole thing for at least $2,700, not including the, uh, the freight and all the things. And by the way, I'm driving to Amarillo tomorrow to go try and figure out if I can pick up the van tomorrow, if I have to wait till Tuesday or even Wednesday to get it. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where I just lay in the bed going, seriously, God, wh what is going on here? I mean, haven't I dealt with enough in the last couple of weeks to, I really, I mean, we finally got to the point where it's funny. We were joking about how financially we're, we're doing better and, and we gotten all of our credit cards paid off and all those things. And I'm like, well, at least now we have room in our credit card to buy a transmission. That's great. I'm so excited. You know, and then those kind of things come to your mind. And you're just like, this is, this is just ridiculous. And I just laid there and I was angry. And I began to understand why it says don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because when do we, at the time most, dwell on the things that we're angry about? When we're laying in bed. Some of you can just lay down and go to sleep. 
Me, I lay down, and I watch the ceiling fan turn. And I watch it turn, and I watch it turn, and I watch it turn, and I'm like, okay, I'm just ready to go to sleep. I'm ready. And then, of course, everything I need to think about starts getting thought about, and I just start going over it all in my head. And when it's something I'm angry about, then I get really angry. And then you start having a conversation with yourself. You ever had a conversation with yourself? And it's like you're having a fight with whoever it is. And you start talking back and forth with them. Yeah, you've done it. You guys who are laughing, you've done it. And by the time you're done, you're really mad. And that person has no idea why you're mad at them. The next morning, you're like, I hate you, you know, I'm going to break you. You know, there's just this anger and they're like, what, what did I do? You're like, well, don't you remember our conversation last night? You know, and, and we'll, fight, we'll fight it out for them. And those are the things that we do. And, and that's why it says don't let the sun go down on our anger. Because we can't let those things get in the way of who we are and who Christ is. Because that can be a real negative, obviously, if you're yelling at somebody and they don't even know why. The third thing it says is if you were a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work and then give generously to others in need. When there's a life change that happens, there's a complete flip. Because you go from taking what others have earned and what they deserve for yourself to working hard for your own stuff and then giving instead of taking. What kind of life change is that? And then maybe here's a verse that you've memorized as a kid or or were told to at least. It says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. You know, one of the worst places that I've heard criticism at is in the church. It seems like a group of men or a group of women or a a group of all together will stand around and they'll criticize. And they tear each other down. They tear people down. What good is that in any way, shape, or form? Shouldn't the church be a, a, a refuge, a, a haven for those who have taken that abuse all week long to be encouraged and refreshed and renewed, yet so many times it's not? We need to lift each other up. The final section of this passage says, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own, guaranteeing that you'll be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Referring back to chapter 3's prayer, we talked about the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and changing us, and us making room in our lives for Christ to come in and take over, to have Him make Himself at home. Remember we talked about when you have somebody make themselves at home, you don't tell them they can only stay in one section. They, can, they have the, the full run of the place. We need to let Christ do that. And when we actually do this, people on the outside should see it. People on the outside should see this change in our lives. And I'm not sure if you had a chance to. I posted it on, on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. Um, Andy Stanley, I've told you about him before, one of my favorite communicators, had a message. It was called Separation of Church and Hate. And uh, the whole message was about how it's so much easier to make a point than it is to make a difference. And so many times in the life of the church, we're all about making points. About this is what you're doing wrong, and this is why you need to do it right. Once again, it goes back to non-Christians will act like non-Christians. 
And we make points instead of trying to make a difference. Well, how do we make that difference? We let our lives change and let other people see it. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says this. It says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your what? Let your mouth? No. Let your good deeds. Let the things that you do because of who you are in Christ shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Wouldn't it be great if Christians would just shut up and live the life that they're called to live instead of try and talk their way through it? It'd be a great thing to see instead of trying to make a point that they actually do make a difference. Look what it says in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. It says, live wisely among those who are believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone That's the question. Today, what do you choose? To make a point or to make a difference? To have your conversation be full of grace or to be that type of person that is out there to make a point? Are you going to live a life worthy of being called an imitator of God? Because you see, the first verse of chapter 5, it says, Imitate God, therefore, and everything you do because you are his dear children. Imitate God. Are we living lives that imitate God? Question I've got for you. Because we can be great posers. It's a word that maybe some of you have heard a time or two before. But when I was growing up, it was always the, the skater crowd. And then there was the ones who looked like the skater crowd. There's actually guys who got on their boards and did things, and then there's the guys who just dressed like it and had the bangs and the goofy-looking hats and so on and so forth. Well, there was the, the real deal, and there was the posers. Are you the real deal? Are you living the life and actually doing it, or are you just a poser? What are you going to choose? That is the question I have for you today. As we look at Ephesians chapter 4, are you living a life worthy of being called a follower of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for your message. I thank you for how you spoke to me even this week. I thank you for the book of Ephesians. Even though it was written 2,000 years ago, it's so applicable to us today. Help us, Lord, to not just talk the talk, but also to walk the walk, to make a difference by living, not just by talking, to make a difference that people can see our good deeds and praise you for it. God, you're an amazing God, and we thank you for choosing us to be yours. Help us to live a life that's worthy of that calling. Pray it all in your name. Amen.